Tennis fans, and welcome to yet another edition of the Southpaw Slice. I'm Ben Lewis, joined by Mike McIntyre. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at Southpaw underscore Slice. And we're very excited for this episode. Of course, Canadian Felix Auger-Aliassime is just coming off an incredible run to the Rio Open final. Before we get to that, though, we are very excited to be joined by our special guest of the week, chair umpire Eva Azdaraki-Moore. So, Eva, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, firstly, I know you just recently returned to the chair after giving birth to your first child. So congratulations. And uh, I guess, are, are you faced with any new challenges now being a mom and, and being back on tour. Hello, thank you very much. It's um, yeah, it's a, a great new chapter of my life. Um, to be honest with you, the biggest challenge so far is just leaving him for the whole day. I was uh, with him for six months, every day, every night, and then all of a sudden going going to work and leaving before he woke up or coming back home after he was already asleep. I struggled with that. I didn't like it at all. Um, but no, other than that, so far I only worked um, at home. I worked here in Australia at the Open and before that Hopman Cup. So I didn't have to do any long-haul travels or flights and enjoy all that. Mm. Um, a flight to Paris, he was fine. He was absolutely fine, but that was only a four-hour flight. So he was a good boy. <laughs> that's uh that's good to hear during i guess during your uh time off uh on maternity leave did did you find that you missed being uh in the chair at all yeah i did i did and that's, that's why i decided to come back um to officiating uh my last tournament was uh, roland garros uh last year so i got to watch wimbledon and the u.s open and then some other tournaments in between on tv and I did miss it, yes. It was strange not being, especially at those two tournaments, because I've never missed one. And uh, it was strange just watching it all on TV. Uh, but uh, it was always in my mind before I had him, uh, when I was pregnant. Uh, it's not that I had made the decision to come back or not to come back. I, when I spoke to my bosses, it was all open. You know, I said, I'll have to see how it goes, because I didn't know what I would have to face. I didn't know if I would want to come back or I would just want to stay at home the whole time with him or anything. Um, but I did miss it, and yes, I decided to, to definitely come back. Once you got back into the chair, did you find it took you long to get back into the groove, and uh, were you feeling any uh, sort of nerves that first match back in the chair? Yeah, there was certainly some nerves. Uh, my first tournament was, was Hopman Cup, which was a good tournament to get back into it because it's... Um, you know, everybody's relaxed. You have a lot of top players. You're playing on a TV court with Hawkeye, so you have all that pressure straight from the beginning, um, but equally without the big pressure of a slam. Uh, so it was a good tournament to get back to. But yeah, definitely the first time, the first match I walked uh, out there, I was thinking, okay, it's been a while, you know. <laughs> I, I think I'll be a bit rusty, but then, no, it was good. Everything was good and. It's like a bicycle. Once you know, you don't forget it, really. There you go. Eva, you're respected uh, you know, worldwide for your incredibly fair calls in matches. And 
in particular, your precision for calling the lines from up in the chair. Uh, what, what's the secret to being correct more, more often than not? I don't think there is a secret, to be honest with you. I think you either can see or cannot see, basically. Uh, yeah, look, there is no technique, really. I mean, you know, when you're in the chair, you're supposed to track the ball, whereas supposed to being on the line where you... You know, you do some things differently, but I don't think there is a secret. Uh, the only thing that the ITF is doing to make sure that, you know, the standards are up there and we all have 2020 vision and all that is that every year at the end of the year, we need to submit an eye test. Um, and yeah, but you can wear glasses if you want, you can wear contact lenses if you want or whatever, as long as you have 2020 eye vision. Right. Does having the technology present that we have today with, with Hawkeye and, and such, does that, um, you know, present more, more challenges for you in terms of, you know, making the overrule or, or just allowing players to sort of, you know, use their own discretion to make those calls? Yes or no. On one hand, it's very, it's very helpful. It's been very, very helpful because there are so many, you've seen, there are all these challenges that they show up on the screen and they're not even a millimeter in or out. Uh, so, you know, most of the times it's either luck that we get them right or we cannot get them right at all the line umpires. Um, so it's good that we have that because then the players, you know, if they have a doubt, they challenge the right or wrong and then they just carry on playing. So we avoid all these complaints that we had in the past, I think. And then on the other hand, of course, yes, there's a little bit more pressure because you cannot just hide behind it, you know, you still need to do your job, you still need to do to make the calls as you would uh, out on court 25 where there is no Hawkeye. Uh, but the difference is that now the whole world can see whether you made the right call or not. I think my most uh, significant memory uh, of watching you, at least uh, in the chair, not that uh, when tennis fans watch uh, a tennis match, they're watching the chair umpire, but uh, I'm I'm thinking back to just the the 2015 U.S. Open, obviously the men's final there between Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer, and you you were the first woman chair umpire uh, ever to ump a a men's uh, Grand Slam final, and there were a number of calls in that match. Uh, The U.S. Open, yes. Yeah, and there were a number of calls, I guess, in that match where you really did have to assert yourself and, and, you know, loudly shout out. Was, was there maybe additional pressure for you? Did you feel really nervous going into that match? I mean, I mean we say uh, our players going nervous into a match, but does it exist for chair umpires as well? Well, of course. Not only it was the Grand Slam final, but it was my first men's Grand Slam final. So, of course, I was nervous. Um, I remember one of my colleagues he, who was there, and he was the reserve because we always have a reserve. Um, he walked with me to the court and wished me good luck. And then just before I went out, I said, okay, do you want to do this one? And he said, no, 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 this is all yours today. Uh, so, no, of course I was nervous. But uh, I had umpired both players in the past separately in different tournaments. So at least I was comfortable with that. You know, I knew the players and they knew me. But, of course, the, the occasion, and I knew exactly what it meant and the history and everything, and I was just trying not to really think about that, and I was trying to treat it like any other match, but, no, of course, of course, uh, I was nervous. And then, you know, I walked out there at the time that we were supposed to start, and then five minutes later I had to go back in because the rain started. So I didn't go out there for another three hours. <laughs> 
And uh, I, I guess after that match transpired, were you aware? Were you at all aware of how much positive feedback uh, you got from your job, from fans, media, and even the players alike that they, they were talking about uh, your performance in the chair? Uh, afterwards, yes, I did because I had mm, so many messages and so many emails, and people were sending me links from websites or from articles or anything. So uh, yeah, after I saw, and it was it was amazing. <laughs> no kidding. Um, does, I I don't know if you rank these type of things. I, I'm sure players do, but is that a match that maybe ranks right up there in terms of of biggest uh, matches you've umpired in your career? Absolutely, yes, absolutely, absolutely. It was always, you know, when, I, I think everybody's the same, but uh, when I started, you know, I always set up certain goals. And I was, once I was achieving a goal, I was setting another one. So that was a goal that I definitely wanted to achieve. Um, so I was uh, super happy and super excited, uh, first of all, to be assigned that match. And then, yeah, I was, I have to say I was very happy with the way the match went and I'm glad that, you know, I did get all the calls right in that match and I guess if there is one match that you need to keep your top performance then this is the one, isn't it? It's it's hard to believe that that match was already almost, well, it be four years ago this summer. Since then, what other matches matches have stood out for you in, in recent memory in a positive way? Uh, so since that match, I did in 2017. I did bo- um, both Wimbledon and U.S. Open, the women's single final. Um, but that year, I also did the Davis Cup final, which was again a first for me, and uh, I was the second woman to to do a Davis Cup final. So that was another very special uh, tournament, very special moment. Um, yeah, and it was it was amazing. The whole atmosphere, the whole Davis Cup atmosphere, especially in the final, was something special maybe this is a a silly question uh but just thinking of the different finals you've umpired is there any difference at all between umpiring on on a men's on the men's side versus the women's side at all um kind of um generally uh men's matches are faster in every aspect um and then i don't know i think it's a little bit generally you know, in women's match, there is generally more emotions around. Um, whereas I think the men are more straightforward. Uh, so you need to adapt a little bit um, according to that. And just a, a follow-up to that, uh, since, you, since there, there is obviously a difference, um, you know, I think match-to-match, match, are, are you taking the same approach as an umpire if you know you're umpiring certain players? Or is there a bit of a style sometimes you have to adapt in terms of, of managing personalities? Yes, 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 absolutely. Um, I think you know that by umpiring players yourself or by asking other umpires about certain players. Um, some players, for example, they constantly look at you for confirmation of a call, you know. Other players, they don't want you to talk to them at all. Or there is all these little things that, as I said, you either have learned yourself or you, yeah, you know from other umpires. So, of course, every player is different. And, yes, we're doing our job and our job is the same. But when it comes to managing players, I think characters and personalities, yeah, play a big role. 
Speaking of characters and personalities, the, the game has seen so many great players come and go in the 12 or so years that you've been umpiring at the WTA and ATP levels. Are there any players that you miss, uh, you know, watching or, or dealing with in a professional manner because of either the you know, level of respect from them or, or just the perspective of, of uh, admiring their games? Um, not so much missing umpiring or, you know, being around, uh, at least from when I was working. But uh, when I grew up watching tennis and playing tennis, I was always uh, watching um, Steffi Graf and Thomas Muster. So I kind of wish they were around when I started umpiring. I, would have, I think I would have enjoyed seeing them live and, uh, yeah, getting to umpire their matches. <laughs> How about a John McEnroe match? That's all right. I, I pass on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Eva, as with most sports, officials have a certain amount of personal discretion, of course, when enforcing the rules. And this can obviously cause both players and fans some frustration, to say the least, in terms of uh, looking for consistency. How do you balance applying the rule book versus relying on your own instinct when you're in the chair, uh, in particular in big matches? Well, look, the rules are rules, and... We have to start by knowing the rules really, really well. Not only because then we'll be able to apply them, but also because we'll be able to use our judgment and common sense of how to apply a rule. I think personally that there, you know, there are not so many things that are black and white in tennis. Um, so yes, judgment plays a big part. Um, so it depends, really. It depends on the match. It depends on previous behavior of the player in that match. It depends on, you know, how serious you think something is or if you make a decision, whatever, about player's behavior, let's say, if you, think, if you believe that if you take a decision that moment will help the situation or make it worse sometimes. It depends on many things. You know, it's a completely different thing to watch a match on TV from the comfort of your sofa and have an opinion on what you watch and a completely different story to be in that hot seat and have to make that decision in a split second. That's why, at least if you have very, very good knowledge of the rules, then all this process of thinking, is it going to make a good um, whatever impact if I make this decision? Is it going to be fair for both players, you know, all these things. We have to make this process very, very quickly. Um, and that's, mm, yeah, that's one of the challenges of the job. But for me, the most important thing, and the thing that I always tell other officials, is that there is always two players on court. Uh, so when we make a decision about one player, we always need to think about the opponent as well. In, that's what I believe. Yeah, in terms of just application of those rules, uh, probably most tennis fans wouldn't wouldn't even understand how lengthy a rule book maybe a chair umpire is is dealing with. Are, are there sort of yearly or you know regular evaluations of, of umpires on, on tour in terms of in terms of knowledge of those rules and, and just how much is there to to know? The actually the rule book of tennis is not very big at all, and the rules themselves have not changed. Um, almost from the beginning. Uh, what has changed is innovations and maybe different procedures. But the rules themselves have not changed. So as for the evaluations, we actually get evaluated and we evaluate other officials every single tournament. 
Really? Uh, we okay. watch um, lower budget officials during a week of the tournament, and we discuss their matches. We write an evaluation at the end. Uh, another thing that happens is that every year, at the beginning of the year, when all the tours they have submitted their new rule books with, as I said, new innovations or slight changes here and there, then we are all sent an open book test, um, which is exactly what it says. We are supposed to go, we are forced to go and read the rule books again and pass the test. And if we don't pass, um, I, I don't remember how many questions we, we, we shouldn't get wrong. But if we get more wrong questions than we should, at the end of the year, we get a warning letter. So there are things that we do. And then separately, you know, among all the tours, they do things differently. But I know the ITF, we have meetings in every Grand Slam. And we watch cases that have happened, you know, in between the slams. And we discuss them. And we try and find a common ground or we think, well, we say if we think that was right or wrong or what we would have done differently. And uh, you yourself made the switch to uh, becoming an ITF umpire just a few years years ago. Does does that give you more choice in in terms of the events you work? And um, what what kind of schedule could we expect to see from you? I guess in in this year going forward. Uh, no, it's not so much more choice. It's just completely different calendar, completely different contract. Because for the ITF, um, my obligations are the Grand Slams, ITF, and then Davis Cups and Fed Cups. Um, and on top of that, sorry about this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind. <laughs> uh, and then on top of that, some ITF schools. Uh, so that's the main difference. And then if I want to work a WTA event or an ATP event, I should give availability to the, to the WTA or to the ATP, and then it's up to them if they need somebody for that week. Hmm. Uh, so that's the main difference. Eva, some umpires seem to get a lot of attention while others manage to just sort of blend in on the job. You've, you've certainly attracted somewhat of a cult following among hardcore tennis fans. Is that something that you've noticed? Uh, do you get recognized a lot at, at events by fans who, who come up and say hi to you? Um, well, <laughs> yes. In tennis, in tennis tournaments, yes. It's, um, it's quite nice, you know. It's, uh, it's nice to see that... Yeah, people notice you as well, uh, and they like or don't like your job, and <laughs> they come and talk to you, and they want a photo with you, or all these things. It's, it's really nice. It's really nice. You, you don't seem to have a, an official Twitter account in terms of social media presence, although I, I know there used to be one about your ponytail, I believe. I don't know if that's <laughs> still out there or not. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Do you purposely stay away from that sort of uh, social media world, or, or is it something that you still manage to, to keep an eye on from a distance? No, it's safer to stay away, to be honest with you. Um, it's, as I said, it's really nice on one hand to have all these people liking you and, you know, whatever, following you and all that. But on the other hand, uh, it's a little bit strange as well. Like, there have been, in the past, there have been a couple of times that, some Twitter accounts showed up that were pretended to be me. Um, and they were, yeah, posting things and saying things as if it was me. Uh, so for all these reasons, it's, it's safer to stay completely away from everything. And you can always see what's happening. You can always go on Twitter, if you, if you're, even if you're not on Twitter, and see what people say about you. So, so there you go. Eva Azdurakimor does know what you're saying out there, folks. <laughs> be, be careful. 
Um, Eva, I just want to thank you for taking the time with us. I know life can be very uh, busy balancing parenthood with a career, and we really appreciate you letting our listeners into the life of a, a chair umpire, and uh, we wish you all the success in your travels moving forward this year. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was nice talking to you. Thank you so much as well. That was Eva Azdaraki Moore, chair umpire, who has made her return from maternity leave. And uh, she was in action at the Australian Open, I recall. I remember, I can't remember which match, but uh, maybe I brought it up last week. Like literally within the first two games, like four calls in succession, which she either overruled or didn't and got every single one right. Yeah, she's so so solid. And even with that time away from the sport, it's... Uh it's almost like a Serena-like return all of a sudden back to, you know, great play and, and hopefully Grand Slam, more Grand Slam finals for her coming on uh, in 2019. And uh, it, it's funny, I don't get, you know, super nervous when I talk to, uh, to tennis players anymore, but a little bit of nerves there talking to <laughs> yeah. uh, perhaps one of the greatest, uh, you know, well, definitely one of the greatest, if not the greatest chair umpire uh, that we've seen in recent memory. Yeah, look, it's it's. Uh, I, I think normally when you're standing out as an umpire, people think you're standing out for the wrong reasons. That's never been the case with Eva Azdaraki Moore uh, from her work in the chair. It's always been uh, excellent uh, and and well noted. She she knows how to manage the personalities, which I, I was glad to get into and discuss and and make note of the fact that there is a bit of management of personalities in the job and doing the job successfully. So that was a uh, really cool to hear. You're listening to the Southpaw Slicer. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at Southpaw underscore Slice. You can find me, Ben Lewis, at Ben Lewis SN590. You can find Mike at Pro Tennis Fan. I feel like we're going to have a mix of listeners this week about some people fascinated to hear our interview with uh, chair umpire Eva Azdaraki-Moore, which we've now completed, and maybe a large contingent curious to hear us talk about Felix Ojeali-Asim and... It's kind of becoming ad nauseum to just uh, <laughs> relay yet another Canadian tennis story, but they just keep coming. Yeah, it's incredible in 2019 how many we've had, and and good for, for Canada, good for Tennis Canada and our Canadian contingent. Uh, you know, it's the least surprising one for me personally anyways, the success that Felix has just had out of himself, Bianca Andreescu, and, and recently Braden Schnur as well, because I feel like... Felix has been on the radar for, for quite a long time, even though he's only 18 years old. I mean, I can remember watching him practice and hit with Milos Raonic when he was only 15 at the Rogers Cup, just as a hitting partner, a practice partner. And already you could tell, like, wow, this kid has got the the, the strokes and the technique. And, and he really was just, just a kid at the time. So uh, it, to me, it, it's not surprising that this has happened. Um, the other ones maybe a little bit more so. But, but here he is now, another a Canadian, young Canadian, asserting himself uh, on the tour. And, and what a jump for Felix, who is now, uh, what, just inside the top 60? Yeah, he's exactly number 60 now. And uh, yeah, this surprise uh, breakthrough, it shouldn't be that surprising because Felix has kind of uh, beaten the curve in terms of his age, uh, basically since the beginning of his career as a junior. I mean, uh, he was the youngest player ever to qualify just 14 years, seven months, and win a main draw match on the Challenger Tour side. He had success on the Challenger Tour level in terms of clay events and here he is on clay uh we know he's he won multiple challenger titles we saw the confidence boost i think he probably had playing for team canada when they beat slovakia and he closed that out that was a big moment i think for sure yeah moving forward right coming in at such a a clutch time and it, it doesn't matter the ranking of the opponent or the that is a big time pressure situation, and he came in and, and closed it out. So definitely, I think that gave him a big boost. Mm-hmm. And now this, I mean, a you know first ATP final five hundred level final at that. 
Um, and, and, you know, even though he went down in, in two sets there, um, you know, so much positive to, to take from that whole experience. And, and the fact that he's doing it on clay too is something that we haven't been able to say about too many Canadians. Yeah. It gives us an added element. And when I say us, I mean, you know, Canada uh, at, at large uh, in terms of international play for, for Davis Cup and, and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, th- I think it provides more balance in terms of what the Canadians can do on different surfaces. Maybe if you break it down, Felix could be our best clay court guy. Milos Ranić, we know maybe he's the most effective on grass. And then Denis Shapovalov rising on the hard courts. You have a pretty good combination of top players there and uh, I, I was just so impressed by the way he played throughout the week I mean it all started with the win over Fabio Fanini which was pretty dominant and uh, as an 18 year old just the athleticism that he already possesses and you got to think he's only getting bigger and stronger from here and uh, look this run to the finals that's uh, a record setting run he was the youngest ever to, to reach a final of an ATP 500 event youngest since uh, Rafael Nadal we know he what he did on clay uh, as a young superstar uh, let's not expect that but let's expect I think you know many finals to come in the future for Felix Ogier-Aliassime probably some wins too I'd love to know what the reaction is out there you know outside of Canada in terms of, of people you know watching our results so far in, in 2019 they must just be wondering like what are we putting in the water over there <laughs> yeah. or or what's the off-season training program that, that Tennis Canada is running mm-hmm. because obviously something's clicking in a big way so far this year we're not even two months fully into the into the tennis season no uh, look I'll tell you on, on Twitter I, I'm getting the odd message or or tweet here and there because like wow these Canadian players are something and, and it's true I, I mean we've had a different name uh, basically every single week. Uh, Bianca Andreescu, I'll just bring up, she will be back in action in Acapulco. Denis Shapovalov, not the same result for him in Marseille, France. Uh, he fell in the first round to uh, Mikhail Kukushkin, who actually reached the final there. He had a nice week. Uh, as I mentioned, Acapulco, so Bianca Andreescu will be, will be there, and we're getting uh, you know some top players back uh, and some good tennis to watch. Rafael Nadal is the number one seed there. He basically has the draw that Milos Raonic had uh, in Australia he'll probably have to go through Nick Kyrgios and Stan Wawrinka early on, which could be interesting to see. Uh, Roger Federer, I should mention, won today. He beat uh, Philip Kohlschreiber in three sets. He's playing in Dubai. Milos Raonic fell in his first round match to uh, Jan Leonard Struff. That one was a bit surprising to me. Yeah, and I mean, this is going to happen. Look, unless you're Novak Djokovic or Rafael Nadal, you're not making it to the finals week in and week out. These guys are having ups and downs, and Milos is going to be no exception. Um, I, I think overall, if we assess the first couple months of his season, we've got to say it's it's been positive. Yeah, yes. I mean, the Australian Open alone is something that can sustain, I think, Raonic fans for, for some time because he really put in such a great effort there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, you're not going to get these guys in every event uh, going going deep because of the uh, the other players that are going to present challenges and and there's very few players that can just be as dominant as uh, as the big the big guys but it's neat you know to have these top guys back in action this week Nadal and Federer for the first time since the the Australian Open um, also something that I, I was just realizing we weren't including this but I think we should mention Del Potro back in play yes. last week in, yep. in Delray Beach and winning his first two against uh, Nishioka and Opelka, Riley Opelka, who's been playing pretty well lately. So yeah. that's got to be encouraging for Delpo before falling in a, a tight three set and a, uh, a tie break to Mackenzie McDonald. So it, it's great to see the, the big names back too. We love talking about the Canadian players, but obviously who doesn't like seeing some of these big, big guys back in action as, uh, as the season progresses here. Yeah, and it's, it's a little unusual for me to look at that Dubai draw and you have no Nadal, no Djokovic, 
mentioned Federer there, and he's not holding on to that number one seed. Uh, lost some points, obviously, from the Australian Open, which I think maybe some people feared would happen, and he's the number two there. Uh, but we already had some early round exits, which have opened things up a little bit from him. Milos Raonic losing. He was the number seven seed. And Karen Hatchinoff has now lost three consecutive first-round matches, so he's in a bit of a rut right now. We'll see if he can dig himself out of it come Indian Wells. Uh, before we get, uh, I guess, a little more into Bianca Andreescu, on the WTA side, Belinda Bencic just had a terrific week. Four top ten wins. It started with uh, Arena Sabalenka. Then you take out Simona Halep. Then Alina Svitolina. And it was Petra Kvitova in the final. A bunch of three-set matches there. Uh, wow. So she's uh, she's over into the top 25. She is one of these players who uh, does not fear the big names in terms of facing them. She gets up for the challenge. Absolutely. And and it's nice to see her back to playing some, some great tennis because she'd been sort of out of it for a while due to injuries and coming back and trying to get back in the groove. And I mean, it's funny, we got to go back to the 2015 Rogers Cup um, and she made it all the way to the finals and defeated Simona Halep there. And that was like a, a total shocker. Mm-hmm. And I was looking back at who she defeated back then. And this is, again, almost four years ago now. She knocked off Jeannie in the first round, then Caroline Wozniacki, Sabine Lisicki, who was still pretty relevant back then, Anna Ivanovich, Serena Williams in the semis. And Simona Halep, all six of those players had either made a Grand Slam final or, or better or had won a Grand Slam final uh, in their career. So that was just outstanding. And I think for many people, it was like, where, where did this where did she come from? Even yeah. though she was a, a number one junior. But oh, my goodness, Switzerland with uh, with another great player at the time. And then she couldn't sustain it due to, you know, her, her body not being able to uh, to be healthy enough to compete on a regular basis. Great to see her back. And what's remarkable to me is she's still only 21 years old. Even after all this time, and you think she's been around a lot longer, she's, she's still in her early 20s. Imagine what, what lies ahead for her if she can stay healthy and, and build on this result as she's now on the cusp of the uh, top 20 on the WTA. Yeah, that's right. I, the, the first we were really hearing of her when she was making that huge rise was a, a 17, 18-year-old player who was, who was up and coming. And uh, plenty of time, I don't want to say plenty of time to figure it out. Clearly, she's, she's figured things out. I think uh, time for her to stay healthy. And at just 21 years old, she is uh, just another name to watch on the WTA who could uh, surge into the top 20 and certainly greater than that. Jeannie Bouchard was playing in Dubai last Last week, she won her first match and then had to face Simona Halep uh, and lost in straight sets, but a tight two sets, 7-6-6-4. And I'll note that a, a lot of pundits were talking after this match about how high level it was uh, from both players. So that's a good sign. Yeah, definitely. You're going up against Simona Halep, who's now ranked, uh, what, second, I want to say, in the in the rankings. I haven't checked today, but uh, second or third anyways. And that's a solid result. You know, tie break in the first set, 6-4. And, uh, you know, Jeannie, again, making now second, third rounds more regularly, mm-hmm. uh, not falling in the first round as she seemed to be doing a, a year ago with regularity. So so this is great. It's uh, it's her birthday today, actually. It's Jeannie Bouchard's 25th birthday today. Wow. And, uh, you know, mid-20s. So it's going to be interesting to see. I, I feel like she's already kind of lived two careers worth of headlines and, and up and downs and, and all the, the press, positive and negative uh, just to get to age 25, it's going to be interesting to see what she can do now with uh, with the rest of her 20s. And and I think she's slowly, we've talked about this at length this year, she's she's taken steps in the right direction. Yeah, definitely. And uh, look, the player she's she's lost to um, is 27 years old. Petra Kvitova, who was just in the final there, uh, turning 29 years old this 
uh, week, or no, rather this year. Uh, so that will tell you that, uh, I, I, you know, Jeannie Bouchard's not towards the end of her career. I, if anything, I think she's right smack in the middle. And as many young players as there are upcoming on the WTA, we still have some veterans there who are hanging in uh, amidst the top 20, uh, still getting it done. So plenty of time for Jeannie Bouchard, who is uh, continually making strides and again did in Dubai this past week. Uh, Bianca Andreescu was our guest last week uh, when I got to spe- speak to her for about 10 minutes, and she's playing in Acapulco. Uh, she'll play a wild card to start her event. And look, she acknowledged that the goals have changed for her in 2019. That generally happens when you win 18 of your first 20 matches, you reach a final, you win another title. Uh, I guess how do we approach uh, Bianca's upcoming tournaments and season in terms of expectations, what should we expect from her? Yeah, it's funny because on one hand now you're looking at the draw and you're thinking like, hey, Bianca's got a pretty good chance here to, you know, quarterfinal, maybe semifinal, but let's give ourselves a little reality check that she's only 18 years old. She's uh, achieved a tremendous amount already in a short time this season. And how is that affecting her off the court? I mean, you know, her phone must be blowing up. Mm-hmm. The media attention alone is is something new, although she did mention to us that she, you know, she said, who doesn't like attention? So That's true. maybe she's of the right mentality where, uh, you know, she's going to handle those pressures, uh, you know, with relative ease. But these are all new things that are coming at her that she hasn't had to face before, not to mention that players are going to know who she is when they step on the court to face her now. I mean, so many highlights and, and things like that, videos on YouTube that they can check out. This isn't going to be some unknown to players, uh, and they're going to be prepared to to face her yes. and and be more aware, I think, of the variety uh, that she brings onto the court. So um, I think we're we're just going to have to temper those expectations and realize that you know if she doesn't make it deep in her next couple of events, that's totally normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's already had such a great start to the season that this has to be seen as a positive. And uh, hopefully she can stay in the moment and, and take it one match at a time. Yeah, that is the hope. And uh, this is not, I wouldn't call it a stack draw at all at Acapulco on the women's side. Sloane Stevens is the number one seed. And then Daniel Collins, we saw what she did, the college player, uh, what she managed at the Australian Open, uh, getting all the way to the quarterfinals was was incredibly impressive. Uh, so she's the number two seed there. A couple other names, Victoria Azarenka is in the mix, Johanna Conta, uh, Amanda Anisimova, the 17-year-old, um, and Donna Vekic. Some names who are maybe trying to find their footing, some young up-and-comers, including Bianca Andreescu. She's one of those players. So I'd, I'd like to see an Andreescu-Anisimova match at some point because to oh, me, that those, would be a lot of fun. those are the two uh, sort of big names amongst that under-20 crowd uh, for me right now and, mm. and so much potential with both of them and Anisimova has in a limited schedule over the last year already had some very noticeable results yep. uh, that'd be a, a heck of a, a Canada-USA match on a tennis court I think Oh definitely and uh, just a, another point just a great thing for Bianca Andreescu coming here as the 71st ranked player there is nothing to defend virtually for her probably for the rest of the year if you think about what she did play last year in terms of ITF events and, and some challenger stuff. She's going to be going into main draws of events now. So this is all, you know, free points for any match wins she can get. She could surge up the rankings pretty quickly if you throw in another, you know, round of 16 quarterfinal semifinal in there. Yeah, she said new goal was top 40 by the end of this year. And I think she's being very modest because I think there's the potential yeah. to go go beyond that. For Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll keep a close eye. I should mention Felix Oceali-Asim. He is making the quick turnaround and playing again uh, in Sao Paulo, Brazil at the uh, 250 event. And pretty interesting, he's going to have a rematch with Pablo Cuevas, uh, which was his semifinal match uh, in Rio. And they went three sets. 
you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know what to expect in terms of such a quick turnaround after reaching your first final at a 500 event. He might be a little exhausted and gas, but uh, maybe he can ride the wave. We'll yeah, see. I, I don't have much sympathy for 18-year-olds when it comes to having to play <laughs> back-to-back events. So that's if you can't true. do it at 18, then uh, then I don't know, man. That's uh, that's You're in your prime there. You're just entering your prime years, I think. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very, very good point. Uh, Denis Shapovalov is uh, taking the week off after that early loss in Marseille. But, of course, we will see everyone men's side, uh, Indian Wells and Miami Open. Right now, Indian Wells is happening on the women's side, but that is part of the Oracle Challenger Series, so not as big of an event. Uh, we will be here to t- chat with you uh, next week, recap all the action from this week, the big ATP 500 events. And, of course, Acapulco will see how Bianca Andreescu fares. And another thank you to chair umpire Eva Azdaraki more that was really insightful that was a lot of fun i think we should have her back don't you absolutely <laughs> i mean you got in you got in contact or contact with her once there's no reason we can't uh, make it happen again so we'll have to check in further down the line you've been listening to the southpaw slice remember find us at southpaw underscore slice we're on soundcloud or wherever you get your podcast we'll talk to you next time